Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like expanding capacity for sustainable aviation fuel and biodiesel in Washington state and bringing massive new infrastructure online in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Today on The Argument, how do we fix the immigration system? I'm Jane Coaston. Our immigration system is broken. It's not just me saying that. Almost every person running for president for the past three decades has said that too. I'm here today because the time has come for common sense, comprehensive immigration reform. The time is now. We're going to have strong, incredible borders. We're going to build a wall. It's going to be built. Believe it or not, it's not even a difficult thing to do. Within 100 days, I'm going to send to the United States Congress a pathway to citizenship for over 11 million undocumented people. But what I mean when I say our immigration system is broken and what they meant, well, those are two very different things. Because our immigration debate is broken, too. When you hear the word immigration, you might think about border walls or cable news footage. But most people who migrate to the United States do so through legal channels. And it's those channels, the quote-unquote right way to come to this country, that I want to focus on today. Because right now, the right way is garbage. It's not just expensive, complicated, and long in the absolute easiest cases. The number of people who have a chance at permanent status in the United States to build a life here and contribute to this country and to their families is actually incredibly small. We've let employers control a large swath of the immigration process. And through the overuse of what's called temporary work visas, these are visas extended to immigrants for a job, many businesses are exploiting it, and the immigrant workers brought in too. And guess what? A lot of those immigration restrictionist politicians who do the most screaming about border security or cutting down on the number of legal and undocumented immigrants in this country love temporary work visas. In fact, the number of migrant workers employed under those visas rose 13% under the Trump administration. While doors to people who wanted to make a life in this country closed, businesses could keep bringing in workers whose lives in America they controlled. And politicians could keep both immigration restrictionists and corporate supporters happy. Yeah, I'm pretty mad about that. But my guests today disagree about whether we should be relying on those visas and just how much they actually hurt workers. Michael Clemens is an economist and the director of Migration, Displacement, and Humanitarian Policy at the Center for Global Development, a think tank in D.C. Daniel Costa is a human rights lawyer and the director of Immigration Law and Policy Research at the Economic Policy Institute, another think tank in D.C. I think that so much of our conversation about immigration is focused on people who attempt to enter illegally. When what I think is actually a little bit more interesting is that over the past 30 years, the United States government has heavily prioritized temporary work visas, while seemingly, to me, de-emphasizing the ability to get a permanent immigrant visa. Daniel, you found that during the Trump years, the number of migrant workers employed through temporary work visas shot up 
about 13% from 2016 to 2019, despite a lot of rhetoric from restrictionists. What do you think that says about what the immigration system is doing to American workers and to migrants? Yeah, I, I, you know, most people thought that Donald Trump cracked down on every type of immigration, right? And for the most part, uh, when it came to immigration, where people come in with rights and a path to citizenship, um, he did. And the numbers dropped pretty far down. But when it came to temporary work visas, uh, those numbers didn't go down. They, they went up. And I mean, President Trump uh, used uh, in his businesses three types of visas, three of the main visas, H-1Bs for college-educated workers, H-2Bs for non-agricultural low-wage work, and H-2A for um, temporary uh, farm workers. And so he used all of those programs. But, you know, what he did was I think he tried to uh, thread the needle between the two wings of the Republican Party. On the one hand, you've got the Republicans who are pro-business and want uh, bigger and deregulated work visa programs. And on the other side, you've got the Stephen Miller uh, sort of anti-immigrant, you know, fair numbers USA kind of wing, which, uh, you know, don't want any immigrants at all. And so what what he did was, you know, crack down on the green cards, basically. And then when it came to work visas, he didn't really do anything on the for the low-wage visas, but for the visas for college-educated workers, he put in, in place a lot of things that made it more difficult for people to get those visas, extra layers of review, new fees, that sort of stuff. But in the end, even those visas that went through these, these additional layers of review, they were still approved. The highest number of H-1Bs that we've ever had was, uh, you know, the, the year right before the pandemic under Trump. You know, he was trying to send signals to the anti-immigrant wing that he was, you know, stopping immigration, but at the same time, he didn't want to, uh, you know, offend or do anything that would, you know, really hurt his true masters, the corporations. Something I, I want to ask you, Michael, because you wrote a really interesting paper on this, and I read literally everything that either of you have ever written on the subject of immigration like Sorry to hear that. everything. So I'm going to reference <laughs> like things. Send you that, a bottle of wine or something. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of the rhetoric we hear from immigration restrictionists is that increased immigration, whether it is undocumented or legal, it pushes down American wages and it impacts Americans in a bad way. And so, Michael, you wrote a paper about a policy that was in the United States that ended in 1964 called the Bracero Program. Can you tell me more about that? Yes, known then as the Mexican Worker Program, uh, informally as the Bracero Program, which just means manual laborer. And over time, it came to be focused on farming. It was hundreds of thousands of workers a year. And it was canceled in 1964, a series of, well, first Kennedy and then Johnson and uh, multiple uh, secretaries of labor and a, a lot of civil society uh, campaigned for years to have the thing uh, ended for many reasons, one of which was frequent abuses of, of workers' rights uh, during the program, but mainly in the words of Kennedy himself, uh, because it was thought to de detract from employment and wage opportunities for, for American workers and particularly for, for U.S. farm workers. But then your paper found it didn't have any impact on domestic worker wages or on domestic worker employment afterwards in the states that were impacted by the end of this program, they were the same as states that had never had this program. 
Exactly. It, it really seemed like they were doing work that was just strictly necessary for agricultural production, especially for particular forms of agricultural production, and was not a work that was a substitute in any sense for, for U.S. labor, even inside the farm sector. There weren't more U.S. farm workers in the in the states where huge numbers of Roceros were eliminated by Johnson. There weren't more U.S. workers migrating from other states into those states to do that work. What it did do was motivate a lot of farms to, to mechanize, uh, which is one of many ways they can respond to a labor shortage other than bidding up wages. And there, there's, there's really compelling evidence in our work and others that, uh, that that happened. Is that something that you've seen, Daniel, in your work? Like, how, What's the relationship between undocumented labor or documented labor and American wages? And what's the relationship between ways for people to come into the country and illegal immigration? I think first, the the sort of general economic literature, Michael knows it better than me, you know, shows that immigration on the whole is not, you know, negatively impacting American wages. And so I think that's that's kind of the the broad context for it. But when you dig a little bit deeper, there are some issues that need to be worked out. Number one, it is not a good thing to have 5% of the entire workforce that has no rights fears, retaliation, and deportation. That is like the number one issue that we need to fix. They contribute billions in taxes. You know, unauthorized immigrants contribute billions. They do really key essential jobs. But the fact of the matter is that it is not good to have a permanent underclass that, you know, has been here for many years. But then the other issue has to do with temporary work visa programs. The fact of the matter is those workers come into a closed universe of about 3,000 employers and about a dozen occupations, and they can't switch and leave those jobs or those employers. So what ends up happening is that many of those workers are are, are legally underpaid based on the way that wage regulations work, and, uh, and they're virtually indentured. And you don't have to take my word for it. There have been countless, uh, you know, government audits, uh, reports from advocates that have showed that this is, in fact, the case and, and the numbers bear it out. And so that is an issue. It's but it's not an issue of immigrants coming in and working. It's an issue of uh, the structures of programs that give employers lots of power over workers. And there are these managed migration programs. And that's that's where the real problem is from from uh, from my perspective. So fixing those is we, we know the solutions for them. They're out there. But, you know, it's just a, a question of political will. Just uh, one of the cardinal sins of guest worker programs around the world is tying to employers. It just makes everything else. I mean, no matter how effective the government apparatus for enforcing safety at the workplace, a pesticide exposure that, that you get the days you were promised, the wages you were promised, it can't be everywhere all the time. But one person is there all the time, and that's the worker. And if they can't leave that employer, no matter what happens, if the only option is, well, just go home, that is a recipe for abuse. And it's uh, that was true during the Bracero program, and it's true now. And it doesn't have to be that way. But there are guest worker programs in the world that allow mobility between employers. One that I would highlight is, is Korea's guest worker program. It's called the Employment Permit System. They have quite a substantial, people don't think of Korea as a country of immigration, but they have a very substantial temporary worker program. It's a limited right of moving between employers, but if you're stuck with an employer who's really treating you wrong, you can leave and go work for somebody else. I have dozens of pages of notes here, and half of it is just employers, employers, employers. And you argue that employers determine the nationality of who gets to come, specifically seasonal workers. They make requests to the immigration services, and DC essentially just accepts or denies visa requests. So if you are, if you request 
20,000 visas for Honduran workers, then D.C. can be like, OK, we request that. But if you are from Honduras and want to emigrate to the United States and you don't have the, that employer backing, what means do you have to get to the United States legally? There aren't any. And that, that's that's just a situation of essentially zero access for anyone. And there's a lot of evidence from a lot of corners that there's a trade-off between lawful admissions and uh, and unlawful arrivals. One of the clears to me is that is in the, this thing called the Mexican Migration Project. It's an epic study that's been going on at Princeton University, where they interview people from around Mexico about their their entire migration history. And in the in the last ten years, people who who report to that project that they're uh, last trip to the U.S. was on a, a seasonal agricultural work visa, the H-2A visa. Uh, a third of them had previously come unauthorized to work. And why did they do that? Not because they just felt like it. It's because that happened before there was an, an increase in the number of, of lawful opportunities for them to come work. People never prefer unlawful migration to lawful migration when it's available. There, there's even a saying in Michoacan, uh, uh, Mil veces contratado que mojado. It's a thousand times better to come on a temporary visa than to come unauthorized. Much safer, uh, better pay, better working conditions, uh, more more reliability of getting work next year. That means that the the existence of any kind of of visa opportunity shifted people out massively from unauthorized migration. I say that in full recognition of every single problem that Daniel's correctly pointing out with those visas. Well, could I cite a piece of evidence uh, just real quickly uh, that kind of contradicts a little bit of that? Uh, so we published a paper in 2015 using that same data set, Mexican Migration Project, which essentially showed that um, the wages that were being earned by H-2A workers and H-2B workers was 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 basically the same as unauthorized immigrant workers. Um, and, you know, the theory behind that is because uh, what we said already about, about work visas, they can't switch jobs, they can't, you know, learn on the job and use that experience to move to another better paying job. And so um, it, when you consider the fact that most Temporary migrant workers pay illegal recruitment fees to get connected to U.S. jobs, which leaves them in debt, which leaves them more afraid to leave their job or lose their job or to complain when something goes wrong on the job. That actually means that the undocumented workers might be better off because the undocumented workers here, you know, have a lot of times have family ties and been here longer. But the workers who come on visas, they've paid money to get here and then they have very little recourse, very little access to justice. So uh, I think it's kind of a toss up. And so when I talk about 5% of the labor force having no rights, I usually try to add on that 1% of temporary migrant workers who also have no rights because they're in a lot of ways in the very same boat. There's a lot of research literally asking people, like, what do you prefer? Uh, uh, Simon Siscara, I think, is the, the name of an anthropologist at, uh, in, in Tamaulipas who who literally interviewed a, a bunch of workers who had done both, just compare and contrast, and could not find anybody who preferred unauthorized migration to to coming on an H two A visa. Uh, well, I don't disagree with you. I won't disagree with you on on that. I, I, I'll just say that you know the evidence shows that there's no wage gain for it. <laughs> and so, oh sure, sure, sure. But they, they but when when the opportunity is available to come legally, even though it comes along with the major problems you're talking about. The vast majority of people still prefer it. And again, employers prefer it. These visas, it's not about protecting the workers. It's about asking employers again and again and again, did you look for American workers? You have to do literally everything besides running outside and screaming, does anyone who is born in the United States want to work this job? And then you can request to do so. 
and yet it doesn't change actual domestic employment at all. You see that 98% of these occupations are certified as saying, nope, we couldn't find an American worker who would do this. So we got visas. Uh I think I would push back on your characterization a little bit. The employers who do this, you know, you have to do a labor certification, it's called, before you can hire an H2B or an H2A worker. But um, the Labor Department office that, that actually certifies that, the Office of Foreign Labor Certification, they don't take fees to do this, and they are vastly understaffed and underfunded, and they basically approve everything. And then um, that's why you have things like just in this past year, you had um, you know hospitality jobs in H2B being certified by the thousands, even though the unemployment rate uh, in the industry was 20%. Uh, in fact, all the basically all the top 10 H2B jobs, you know, jobs were being certified, lots of them in record numbers, but all of the unemployment rates were in double digits. So employers aren't doing very much to have to look for for workers. And and that's an issue that needs to be fixed. And, you know, employers should really have to search nationwide and they should have to offer transportation and housing if somebody wants to come from another part of the country. But that's so that that's the issue on on that side. I think Uh, employers always say that they do a lot of work, but they've done a lot to water down the rules. They've even gone to Congress and got them to put in appropriations writers that water down those rules so that they don't have to really search for workers uh, and to lower the wages that they have to offer the jobs at, which kind of creates a, a fake labor shortage. And um, we spent $24 billion a year on immigration enforcement, on you know chasing down unauthorized immigrant workers. We only spend $2 billion a year on labor standards enforcement. That's all the agencies put together. So we have not prioritized uh, ensuring that people are paid fairly. Uh, and, and instead, we've prioritized you know, terrorizing immigrants. Our current immigration process sucks. It is extremely expensive to do, even in like the easiest, best cases, and so favors people who are quote unquote priority immigrants. I am concerned that how challenging the process is makes temporary visas more attractive and makes attempting to come into the country unlawfully more attractive. So it's not just about the bureaucracy. It is about the favoring of temporary work visas that can keep people in really bad situations. There's a great book called The Fixer by Charles Piot that talks about the visa lottery in Togo. And people are just living and dying to get one of these slots. 236 applications per visa. It's obscene. If it is intended to be working on behalf of America, I don't think it is. And if it is supposed to be working on behalf of migrants... And if it's supposed to be for their behalf, it's not working. So if we want to start somewhere and we are not riled up, where do we start, Daniel? According to UN statistics, the United States hosts 20% of all the world's migrants. So, you know, we are the immigration nation. There are people here and coming and they're going to continue. And I think there's going to be more whether we like it or not. So we should be thinking through how we make these changes. There's you know, a few different pathways, family-based immigration that needs to continue to be robust and we need to not have people stuck in backlogs the way we do. So that needs rethinking. The employment-based visas, green cards, and temporary work visas, I think that those temporary programs need to be completely replaced with programs where people can come in and get green cards much more easily. And then you know, there's the whole humanitarian system that we need to think through. There's a greater need for people to come in as refugees and asylum seekers, and there probably has ever been, and that's going to continue to increase. And I think 
either we need to expand the definition of asylum or we need to have a pathway that is specific for climate-driven migration. I mean, the share of people who are showing up on the border now who are climate-driven migrants, it's got to be at least a third. And so that has to be taken into consideration. And then when you talk about the funding priorities, now I mentioned the $24 billion that we spend on immigration enforcement. Basically, none of that goes to providing benefits to immigrants in a timely fashion. That agency is one of the only ones in the entire government that is entirely fee-funded. So they you know, make their money from processing uh, visa applications. 95% fee-funded and then like 5% through appropriations. Something like that, yeah. And I think their budget is something like 4 or $5 billion. So even if Congress just appropriated 2 or $3 billion a year to that, which is a drop in the bucket compared to what they're appropriating for enforcement, that would just make a massive difference. And so, I mean, that's, that's very much a longer discussion of how to fix it, but that's, I guess, probably where you start. Michael, do you agree or disagree with Daniel's suggestions? What would you do if you could redesign the system and weren't just mad like me? <laughs> They're just great ideas. I mean, the refocusing federal money onto uh, protecting workers' rights rather than terrorizing immigrants a, a thousand percent. I mean, not a lot of people know that the whole immigration enforcement apparatus, we spend more on that than all the rest of federal level law enforcement combined. The, the whole FBI budget, the whole ATF budget, the Secret Service, all the rest doesn't even amount to the budget spent on enforcement. And there are just much better ways to get what a lot of people want. They want fair wages, they want migrants and natives working alongside them to have good working conditions. And that disparity of expenditures is a big sign of the problem. My number one priority would be employer mobility, just empowering workers to assert their own rights, as well as getting backed up by the government with funding. Really, you pose this as the immigration sucks. One window that I have on that is the just extreme rigidity and arbitrariness of the numbers that are baked into law. I mean, yes, there was the reform in 1990, but the fundamental framework that's governing immigration is older than me, and I'm getting old. It was set when people were using rotary phones, and the numbers are just incredibly arbitrary. So work-based green cards for persons of extraordinary ability in arts, science, education, business, or athletics have a hard cap of 40000 a year, 40040 to be exact. Why? Who determined through extensive research that admitting 2,000 more such people would somehow harm the nation? I also like that the description of EB1 is extraordinary abilities, but EB2, which is professionals with exceptional abilities. And I really want to know who gets to decide that you're extraordinary and you're just exceptional. USCIS does. <laughs> the people you want to be deciding that. <laughs> And who decided that we just need 80,000 a year in extraordinary, exceptional, right. <laughs> professional people and not 83,000? The answer is that they were calculated by the BOGSAT method, the, the B-O-G-G-S-A-T, bunch of guys and gals sitting around a table coming up with some number. I happened to be this week trying to figure out where the H-2B cap number came from in the 1990 legislation. I've been talking to congressional staffers who were there, present, working on the legislation at that time. None of them can remember. Somebody made it up and it has nothing to do with any calculation that was made that this is the needs of the American economy. Uh, it was just a number that was made up. And here we are 31 years later with exactly the same number, just an extreme arbitrariness to that process. We need to have 
a modern data-driven system when it comes to this employment-based system. And the proposal EPI has made where I work and the Migration Policy Institute has made and a number of other uh, groups have proposed is having some sort of an independent commission with experts that are studying the labor market, studying you know, real-world events, and setting targets every year, every you know, six months on you know, what the economy needs, where labor shortages actually exist right now. What we have is employers or the Chamber of Commerce goes into an office of a legislator and says, we need more numbers here and we're having labor shortages here. But since there's no good data on this, powerful lobbyists have outsized influence, whereas worker advocates and migrant worker advocates basically have no say. So we need that. And there's a good model for it in the UK called the Migration Advisory Committee that surveys top-down data and talks to unions and worker groups, as well as employers, which they call bottom-up data. And they come up with this public report that has you know, their methodology and it's transparent. And that way, it depoliticizes the process of the numbers. That's a real issue that we have is it's so politicized. If the left and the right or the Republicans and the Democrats can point at a credible piece of evidence that says this is what the needs are, this is what the numbers should be, Congress can accept that or it can amend it or or they can be debated, but at least you have an evidence-based discussion and that is severely lacking right now in our immigration system and debate. Not just the UK, we have something corresponding here, which is a century old called the Federal Trade Commission that is closely analogous to this. In the early 20th century, what tariffs and quotas should we put were highly politicized, they were baked into law, they're incredibly rigid, and everybody loses in that situation. So they addressed it by creating a new agency with bipartisan governance and quasi-governmental power to do objective research about what would be in the best interests of the country and recommend trade policy. And that's how we've set trade policy for a very long time, rather than leaving it up to bickering and think tanks. Hi, my name is Jason from Des Moines, Iowa, and the thing I'm debating about is ranked choice voting. I think a lot of these situations and problems we have with our current political system would be resolved if we introduced ranked choice voting so that we have a more reflexive and representative government since we're not picking between first-past-the-post, winner-take-all situation. What are you arguing about? With your family, your friends, your frenemies? Tell me about the big debate you're having in a voicemail by calling 347-915-4324. And we might play an excerpt of it on a future episode. This podcast is supported by Mercy Corps. From war in Ukraine, to flooding in Pakistan, to earthquakes in Afghanistan. Mercy Corps is delivering urgent humanitarian assistance and long-term solutions to families in crisis around the globe. Visit mercycorps.org donate to learn more and support lasting solutions in over 40 countries. That's mercycorps.org donate to help build a future where everyone can flourish. Hey there, it's Ira Glass from This American Life. And the very first place that you can get the newest episodes of our podcast— it's a full day and a half before they appear anywhere else online, is the New York Times audio app. In the app, you also find the best of our archive, hundreds of episodes, plus This American Life shorts, which are handpicked stories for when you want something, you know, short. That's only at the New York Times audio app. You can download it at nytimes.com slash audio app and subscribe to start listening. There's uh, been a lot of conversation about the 
Biden administration's plans for immigration reform involving an eight-year path of citizenship. You know, you go from a work permit to a green card to the ability to apply for citizenship. But it seems to me that we really need to expand the path to permanent citizenship for all migrants. How do we make employment-based visas and these other forms of legal permanent residency better so that people are able to stay, to change jobs if they want to, to stay for longer periods of time? How do we do that? Well, um, the Biden administration, the bill that you just mentioned, was actually a really good start. And we should say something about the previous attempts at immigration reform and what they look like. The last couple of attempts, they've had what you know people have called a three-legged stool of having lots of immigration enforcement, new enforcement, legalization for the unauthorized immigrant population, plus a new and expanded and deregulated temporary work visa program. So that would not lead us to the kind of new vision that we want. Uh, The Biden administration, to their credit, backed a bill that moves away from that previous sort of grand bargain, as it has been called, with their U.S. Citizenship Act. And it didn't have much enforcement, did not have new and expanded work visa programs. So that, that would definitely be a really good start. And then after that, you move to changing how temporary work visa programs work. Either you completely replace them with programs that uh, just lead directly to a green card, which is, I think, one way to do it. And you need to vastly increase labor standards and oversight to make sure that workers don't get cut up in, say, the recruitment chains that cause a lot of the abuses. But if, you were, if you're going to fix the temporary work visa programs, that's really easy. You have to regulate recruitment so that migrants don't pay legal fees and that they have transparency, know what kind of jobs are coming to. You have to fix wage rules to ensure that they're paid fairly. And then, you know, people who come on these visas need to have a quick transition to permanent residence, maybe a year, 18 months at the most. So turn these visas into what some people have called provisional visas or transitional visas. Right. So Daniel is proposing either new pathways to green cards or temporary work visas that could turn into provisional visas and allowing people to transition to permanent U.S. residency. Michael, I know you want to expand temporary work visas. What do you think of the ideas Daniel proposed? I agree with Daniel way too much for the argument, but there's a couple <laughs> of things that I see differently in, in the excellent things he, he just said. Provisional visas are a no-brainer. This was a proposal of Jeb Bush and many others in a book he wrote on Im- immigration. He said, look, why should there be any strictly temporary work visas in the United States? If you've worked doing temporary work in the United States for 15 years, you've kept a clean criminal record, you've been employed, you're contributing to the economy, that is the job interview. It's way beyond the job interview. Why do you need any further condition to be placed on getting a green card after that? That's just a no-brainer. The part where I have trouble is more of a pragmatic concern, which is that the provisional visas have never arrived. And in the 1980s, long after the Bracero program ended and unauthorized migration was really hitting high levels, there was a lot of debate about this exact issue. What should we do about that? Should there be lawful channels? What kind of lawful channels should there be? And the collective decision was made not to create a big guest worker program for exactly the very legitimate reasons that we're talking about now. But the alternative didn't turn out to be that in 1986 or 1990 or many years later or now, somebody came up with a provisional visa or a way for people to stay permanently. The alternative turned out to be hundreds of thousands of people every year coming unauthorized and contributing to a permanent underclass in the United States and really fueling xenophobia, massive human rights violations, not good for U.S. workers in any sense. That was the alternative 
to having uh, temporary work visas at that time. What needed to happen at that time was much greater access to permanent channels, much greater worker protections, much better design of temporary work visas. But what actually happened was successful arguments against temporary work visas, but then not the next step, the ability to have status for people who contribute at the vocational level to the United States economy, which is so critical, never came. And now we're talking about it and saying, yes, that needs to happen too. But unless we can make it happen, what are we saying to the 195,000 Guatemalans apprehended just in six months of this year? Say, well, there's for every 50 of you, there were only two visas. Are we saying to them that we can come up with permanent visas for any substantial number of them? No, we're just saying, give us a little while and we'll come up with a permanent or provisional visa for you. It's just around the corner, I promise. The next immigration reform, maybe five, maybe 20, maybe 50 years from now, we need a balanced approach and we definitely need vastly better temporary work visas. But we can't promise anybody greatly expanded permanent opportunities because we've been hoping for that my entire life and 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 they're still not here. I very much, you know, uh, respect Michael's work and he's a brilliant economist, but, you know, I, I, you know, he really touts the economic benefits of migration, including through temporary work visas. And he, you know, advocates for increasing the numbers and really focuses on those economic benefits of, you know, somebody in Haiti earning 10 times more in the United States than they would here. But what I don't hear that accompanies those arguments is like the real, you know, critiques. And I don't hear him talking about how the workers, when they come here, they should also be paid according to local standards. They should get what is fair here. And I, you know, I've never really heard him say that in his advocacy or his writing. And Michael is very influential, you know, with governments. There's this global meeting of uh, immigration advocates around the world that has goes to what's called the civil society days of the global form of migration development. And I spoke on the labor migration panel a couple of years back. And what I was surprised by is that it's not just, you know, me, some lefty critiquing these programs, you know, in the United States. It was every single advocate from around the world. The top two issues they brought up was uh, the recruitment of migrant workers and the flaws of temporary work visa programs. Those are the two key issues. There's a global consensus about how this is flawed and how it does not comport with basic human and, and labor rights. And so Michael's work to me seems to ignore it. And you know, governments around the world like look to Michael's work and, and, and value it very highly. So I, I think he's kind of leaving out that element. And, and, and why do they like it? Maybe they like it because the parts about giving workers power and shifting power away from employers is, you know, is not in there. No, I'm, I'm sure that's my failing. And I hope this conversation could be part of clearing that up. It's, it's a lose-lose proposition for everybody not to unleash the, the potential productivity of migrant workers and trapping them with a single employer, undermining their negotiating power, doing the opposite of encouraging and helping them to invest in skill both before coming and while they are working in the U.S., that all of those are bad for the migrants, but they are also bad for everybody else. They are bad for employers, particularly in the long run. They are bad for fiscal revenue in the U.S. Better versions of these programs are essential. And if I have failed to communicate that, then that is my failing. But what I can't sign on to is that we can't expand the programs at all until we solve all of these problems. Because for decades and decades and decades, people have been saying the same thing. It doesn't have to be that no new opportunities for anyone, including opportunities for the American economy, 
can be extended un- until someday we can fix these problems. Can't we do it at the same well, Michael, time? Michael, you sort of laid this out at the beginning of administration in a paper you wrote, sort of you know arguing to to do that. You know, expanding H two B and H two A has been looked at. You're saying it's sort of like the low-hanging fruit. It's there. We can just make it bigger for now until we fix something else. But I think the low-hanging fruit is expanding asylum and increasing refugee numbers because those are easy, quick fixes that you know the Biden administration could do you know, with their own executive authority. And I think a lot of people who are coming now would fit under that. And those people would come in with work permits and rights and probably pass to citizenship. So that's one point. And then number two, I think that the legitimate criticisms that people have of the immigration system, I think, are mostly about temporary work visa programs. Workers are indentured and underpaid. And so if you're going to expand those programs that people are already critical about, that is going to have a, a negative effect on public support for immigration more generally, I think. And so that that is a real caveat that I feel like maybe you're not thinking about because you're so focused on the economic benefits that they'll have a chance to work. Yes, I want them to come in and work too, but there are other ways that the uh, you know the Biden administration could do that in the short term and in the long term. You know, I, I worry that expanding programs that are really bad, where people are indentured and quasi-slaved and trafficked and underpaid, that gives fodder to the other side that wants to restrict immigration. Because look, those programs aren't working. And, and Trump used this in the campaign. People on the right who were arguing for restricting immigration have taken progressive arguments against the program and used it uh, to, to say we shouldn't have immigration. But obviously, you know, people on my side are saying we should let them stay with rights, not stop immigration. That, that's what I hope that we leave people listening with. It's not yes, immigration or no immigration, good or, or bad. It's really the terms on which immigration happens that are so important to work on. And it's possible. It's absolutely possible. These things can be changed. The only thing I disagree with in what you say is that asylum is a meaningful alternative for a lot of those people. Like of the 195,000 Guatemalans apprehended in just six months, how many of them actually have an asylum claim that they can get through courts? Like typically in that same, in a six month period. Expanding asylum is what I said, that we expand asylum and have a few BIA decisions that open it up. And that's something that the administration can do. That would still leave 180,000 of them out with no uh, well, alternative. You're talking about five or 6,000 in terms of the increase. I, I am very much enjoying this argument. And if you guys want to come back, we can keep doing this because I think that the like more permanency, more work visas, what's better for America, what's better for immigrants is a really interesting issue, especially since a lot of the people who are like, immigrants are bad, but these temporary work visas are pretty awesome. It seems hypocritical. Daniel, Michael, thank you both so much. Michael Clemens is Director of Migration, Displacement, and Humanitarian Policy at the Center for Global Development. And Daniel Costa is Director of Immigration Law and Policy Research at the Economic Policy Institute. Thank you both so much. Thank you both. Thank you for having us. If you want to learn more about temporary work programs and the studies we mentioned in the episode, I recommend reading Daniel Costa's paper, Temporary Migrant Workers or Immigrants, published in November of 2020. You should also read Michael Clemens' study on the Bracero program in a paper he co-wrote called Immigration Restrictions as Active Labor Market Policy. I'd also recommend Making Trump's Bed, A Housekeeper Without Papers in the New York Times. And read The Fixer, Visa Lottery Chronicles by Charles Piot with Kojo Nicholas Batima published in 2019. You can find links to all of these in our episode notes. The Argument is a production of New York Times Opinion. It's produced by Phoebe Lett, Elisa Gutierrez, and Bashaka Durba. Edited by Alison Burjek and Sarah Geis. 
with original music and sound design by Isaac Jones. Additional engineering by Carol Seborow. Additional mixing by Sonia Herrera. Fact-checking by Andrea Lopez Cruzado. And audience strategy by Shannon Busta. Special thanks this week to Kristen Lynn. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home.